Hello and welcome to this episode of Flotation's Life to Tape. This is a podcast dedicated to classic stories and historical literature from around the world. These episodes will be the audio version of our visual audio series. To view our visual audiobooks, please visit our YouTube channel, Live to Tape, or you can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash live to tape. Feel free to visit our website, flotations.com, and view the landscape, aerial, and time-lapse photography there. This podcast is presented ad-free, however, we rely on support from our listeners to create this podcast and our extensive artwork collection. Expenses like media hosting, media storage, editing software, and hardware like computers, audio, and photography equipment runs into the thousands. Any donation amount helps, no matter how small or large, is greatly appreciated. Visit flotations.com donations for more information or email donations at flotations.com. Fine art photography is also available for purchase at flotationsstore.com. Prints are made to order and available in large and small formats, including canvas metallic prints, as well as traditional high-end photographic paper in standard sizes. Votations and this podcast can also be supported through the Podcasting 2.0 method. Using a Podcasting 2.0 application like Sphinx Chat or Podverse, you can stream Satoshis, which is one millionth of a Bitcoin, as you listen to the podcast. You only donate as you listen to the episode, and the amount you set per minute is completely up to you. At this time, 1,844 Satoshis is about $1, and you can choose to stream one Satoshi a minute, or 100, or even 2,000. It's completely up to you. Another way to support this show is through word of mouth. Feel free to tell your friends or family about Flotations live to tape. Feel free to share on social media and support by following the Twitter at Flotations for photographic content and at live to tape for our visual audiobooks and podcast announcements. Thanks for choosing to listen to Flotations live to tape. Let's begin this audiobook. Chapter 8 The First Snow. Pam had been five weeks at Ripple. She was getting used to the forest solitude. She was rosy and energetic, keenly resolved to do her very best to keep the farm going until her grandfather came back or made some sign. She was more puzzled than ever that he shouldn't have gone and never left one word or sign. It was cruel to her, so she told herself sometimes, because he knew that she was coming, and what a plight she would have been in, but for the Grinsons. Mrs. Grinson, a kindly but rather dreary woman, had been over once or twice to see the girls at Ripple, and she had told Pam that Sophie should stay through the winter with her. It was a solitary place for two girls alone, but farther down the creek Mrs. Buckle was living with only little Amanda Higgins for company. There was nothing to be afraid of except solitude, and people had to get used to that. Pam was getting used to it, and she was so occupied from morning to night that she had not much time to think about herself. The neighbors were kind, although they lived so far away. Galena Grissons came over regularly every week, and it was she who instructed Pam in the mysteries of farm work. Galena had a shrewd head on her shoulders and knew what had to be done and the best way to do it. 
Zipan was rigorously put to her pieces. She spent laborious days in the forest with Galena, gathering beech nuts for the pigs to be stored against the time when the snow would prevent the creatures foraging for themselves. She toiled over harvesting the roots that were still in the fields, and with her own hands dragged the loads on a truck to the house, where the capricious seller received them and would keep them safe from fear of being spoiled by frost. There was not a horse on the place. Pam wondered at first how her grandfather managed without a beast of burden, but Galena told her that a good many people who had only a few cleared fields kept no horses, for the keep of animals was a big consideration in winter, and it was possible to hire a man and a team when they were needed for a purpose of cultivation. I am glad not to have a horse to look after, but it will seem rather far to walk to the corner or to Hunt's Crossing every time I want to post a letter when the snow comes, said Pam, who was looking forward to being snowbound with considerable dread. Only she took good care that no one should know it. She did not choose that these people to whom the forest was so well known and familiar should ever guess how scared she was at the thought of the long dark nights and the cheerless days which would have been faced before the summer again. It was not in her nature to give up, and so much hung on her ability to keep the place going through the winter. If her grandfather did not return in a year, and if he gave no signs of being alive, it was probable that the authorities would allow his death to be assumed. Then, in the event of no will being found, his daughter would naturally take what was left. It was the future of her mother and the other children that Pam was guarding, and she was best-minded to do her very best. Ah, how homesick she was for them during those shortened days, while the forest trees flamed through a splendor of crimson and gold to the brown and the russet of the dead leaves. But she would not speak of her pain. She would not grumble over her misery. It was when she was most hilarious that Sophie guessed at the homesickness raged the fiercest. There had been no need for Mrs. Buckle to practice her lock-picking skills on the desk in Rackperville's sleeping chamber. When Pam's heavy luggage was brought in from Hunt's Crossing, she discovered that the key of her writing case served also to open the desk which the old man had used. This, when opening, had not been found to contain much. Some money there was, but only a little. There was a small heap of letters, well worn with much reading. There were letters from Pam's mother, and Pam cried over them more bitterly than she had ever cried before, for they revealed a side of her home life that she had only faintly guessed at. Mrs. Walsh had not found her marriage a happy one, and she poured out her bitter disappointment and her grief to the old man, her father, whom she had set at naught and run away from in her desperate eagerness to get her own way. Those letters did not appear to have been answered, indeed. Almost every one of them began with a reproach because the old man had not written. Some of them begged for money to meet some pressing need. The babies had come so fast, and the needs had been so great. Pam wondered why the old man had not asked his daughter Pam wondered why the old man had not asked his daughter to come home again after the death of her husband, but he had not. He had never even hinted that he would like to see her again. 
It made Pam shiver to think of it. She could not imagine being parted for years from her mother without her mother wanting to see her again, but she was too just to condemn the old man. Of course, there was another side to the question, her mother's side. Without a doubt, Pam gained a great insult to the natural laws, the ethics of give and take between parenting child and that reading of the letters in her grandfather's desk than she would have done from any other source. Her grandfather must be found somehow. Then, when she had found him, it must be her work to bring about a reconciliation between him and her mother. Then her mother must come home. Without a doubt, the place of Mrs. Walsh was at Ripple. The children would love the wild, free life of the forest. The boys would grow into strong men here, and if the effort to get an education was greater, the chances were that they would prize it more. It was this planning for the good of the family that kept Pam's heart warm in those shortened days of the fall. The mornings grew colder and colder. The pond behind the barn, which drained to the creek, was fridged with ice, and she had to use a long pole to keep the space of open water for the animals. Later on, that would not be possible, and she would have to melt snow for them in the boiler, and that was built into the house shed, which stood between the house and the barn. There was no snow as of yet, but it might come any day now. There would be an end to all search for the old man, and once the land was covered in its white mantle, so Pam took advantage of every day when she could spare the time to take long tramps across the forest in every direction. Don Grinson had brought her a pocket compass, and armed with this, she found her way back. However, hopeless she might get, confused in anything, to strike a trail. There came a day in early November when the dawn seemed as if it could not penetrate through the cloud masses that brooded so closely down over the forest trees, a great dreary day when made Pam more homesick than ever. Though apparently in the wildest of spirits, she rushed between the house and the barn doing the morning chores, and as she hurried to and fro, she sang at the top of her voice, the sounds of her singing having a weird effect on that dreary cold morning. Luke Dobson from Hunter's Crossing came along about ten o'clock and wanted to know what was to be done about the lumber felling. Her father had arranged for twenty acres of black spruce to be cut this fall, and Luke Dobson wanted to know if the work was to be carried through or what was to be done in the matter. You say that Grandfather had settled a price of everything, asked Pam, who was so terribly in the dark about business matters that she had to rely on other people. It was great comfort to her that this man looked honest and respectable, and Sophie had told her that he did most of the lumbering in the district this side of the ridge. No, if the price had been settled and the contract signed, there would have been nothing for me to do but to warn you of the transaction and cut the lumber at my own convenience, said Mr. Dobson, who had rather a bothered air. He did not like having to do business with women, for privately he considered them lacking in common sense, and this one was only a girl. Moreover, with a skittish look, just for all the world, like a young colt, so he told himself in severe disapproval of Pam's radiant good spirit and smiling face, how much did Grandfather want, and how much 
were you prepared to give? asked Pam, who had her own theories on the way of doing business. Mr. Dobson stated the price he was prepared to give and the sum for which Rack Burrell had stood out, a matter of only a few dollars in reality. He had suffered straightforward to say that black spruce was going up in price, and he was willing to make a small advance on his first offer if Pam was able to do business with him. Oh, I'm quite willing to do business, replied Pam in an airy tone. Then she dropped suddenly into a graver pitch while lines of care showed on her face. The trouble is to know what power I have to sell anything belonging to my grandfather. Supposing I took your offer, and when you had cut the lumber, he came back and objected to the transaction. It would be out of your own power, or mine either, to put the trees back on their stumps again. And what would my position be? Mr. Dobson shook his head and looked dubious, hesitated a minute, then said rather uneasily, I take it that you are here to do your best for the old man, or if he is dead, for your mother, who is his natural heir. You can leave that lot of trees standing another year if you would prefer it. But if your grandfather comes home and the police get a hold of him, the part he is supposed to have had in the death of Sam Buckle, there will be the expense of his defense and all other things that arise out of the actions at law. And you will be hard put to it, perhaps, to find ready money when you are most need of it. If, on the other hand, he is dead or is never heard of again, your mother would agree that you had acted for the best in selling and your trees would be hard cash and safe from any danger of being destroyed in a forest fire. Pam shivered. She was thinking of that awful desolate region that spread over so many acres of forest where Mrs. Buckle lived. Her grandfather's black spruce would not be worth the trouble of lumbering if a forest fire happened along that way. But she had a cautious streak in her character, and she knew how dreadfully ignorant she was. So she said frankly, I shouldn't like to take your offer straight away, but I think I ought to ask the advice of someone outside. Dr. Grenson will be round this way today or tomorrow. Do you mind letting it stand over until then? That will suit me very well indeed, and I will wish you good morning, said Mr. Dobson, getting to his feet in a great hurry. But Pam had a question to ask before he went one that she had been wanting to ask all the while Luke Dobson had been talking to her. Do you mind telling me where that twenty acres of black spruce is? she asked nervously. Of course she ought to know every bit of her grandfather's land by this time, and as a matter of fact she had supposed that she did know it, but puzzled her head as she would, she could not remember any plantation of trees which would be twenty acres in extent. What a lot of trees there would be on twenty acres of land, a piece that was twice as big as the cleared field at the back of the house. Don Grinson had told her Don Grinson had told her that that was ten acres, the ten acre lot he called. Ah, you would have gone the round the quarter section boundary post, said Luke Dobson slowly, and then he turned to a roughly drawn map that was nailed to the wall opposite the window and called Pam's attention to it. You see this map, Miss Walk? Well, this red line is your grandfather's boundary. His broad finger was traveling slowly around the red line for her benefit, but he paused where a thick black line crossed the red. This black line shows the old tote road. What is a old tote road, demanded Pam. 
looped up and rubbed his head in a rueful fashion. I don't know. It has always been called the Tote Road ever since I can remember, and I have lived here parts all my life. But I never heard anyone ask before. I know, cried Sophie, looking up from her work. A tote road is so-called because it is a road along which people tote things that is carrying them. That road leads straight away through the forest to the river miles below, Hunt's Crossing. It is rarely used now, but I have heard some of the old people say that it is a way the lumber used to be carried from these parts to be floated down the river to Fredrickson. Well, now I shouldn't wonder, but what you are right exclaimed Mr. Dobson, who was fairly amazed at such reasonable solution of the mystery. What a thing it is to be clever, cried Pam, and then crossed the room on purpose to give Sophie a little hug, just to show that she had no intention of making fun of her. Your grandfather brought that light cheap about fifteen years ago, said Luke Dobson, his big finger covering the small red line patch on the farther side of the old tote road. There was a half-beat lived out there, a mighty hunter he was too, but he got caught napping one day and was clawed by a bear. Died of it. He did too. And his wife, and his wife, she was a white woman from St. John. She sold the land at whatever anyone would give her for it and cleared out sharp. They used to live in a bit of a shack standing on the tote road. I expect it standing there still, bits of it, but no one has lived there ever since. I am sure that I have not been in that direction yet, or I should have seen the house, said Pam, who was studying the map with close attention, bewildering to her to get her bearings in the forest, and she had not hitherto understood the significance of the roughly drawn map. You better take a stroll around there before fixing up with me about lumbering that bit, Mr. Dobson advised her as he took his leave, and Pam made her mind that she would go right away. The tote road ran on the side of her grandfather's land, farthest away from the trail to Hunt's Crossing. It was thick forest in that direction, and Pam, with her dog at her heels, had made her way by the narrow trail that was really an old game path. But presently she emerged on a wide avenue, running in a straight line east and west, and looking as if it was stretched for miles and miles. As indeed it did, it was fast being choked with rubbish brandles and so forth, but it would not take much trouble, but it would not take much trouble to make it fit for traffic once more, and the ground was solid and level beneath her feet, very different from the mossy, marshy trails which bounded these parts. So this is the old tote road, she murmured as she stood surveying it, but it was too cold to stand long and she was anxious to start her inspection of the lot of black spruce. She had learned all she could about trees and lumber generally since she had been at Ripple, and her education was so far advanced that she could tell black spruce when she saw it, also cedar, ash, maple, birch, and oak. She was wise enough already to understand that it was a really valuable lot of trees that stood in series rows bordering the old tote road. Sophie had told her that the black spruce was valuable because it was so largely used for pulp for paper making. All those long lines of trees at which she was gazing were potential newspapers or novels or perhaps hymn books. How strange it was to think that trees could be made into paper, a material that she and her ignorance had always associated with rags and straw. 
She laughed a little as she thought of all the wonders science had brought, and the dog, at the sound of her voice, crept closer to her side, pressing its head against her knee with a whimper of affection. She stooped to pat the shaggy head for the love of the creature was really precious to her. Suddenly the dog gave a low, savage growl, then stood with its teeth bared, gnarling while a ridge of a hair stood up along its spine, a sure sign, indeed, of something wrong. Have you heard someone about, or is it only a fancy that you have got in your thick old head? asked Pam. But although the dog wagged its tail at the sound of her voice, it began to growl again the next moment, and then it went creeping forward, its teeth still bared and looking so fierce and ugly that Pam was more than half afraid. Then she caught sight of the angle of the shingle roof and guessed that she was close to the half-ruined sack that stood on her grandfather's land. Did the poor deer see a house, and didn't the poor deer like it? She asked the dog, jumping at once to the conclusion that it was the nearness to a dwelling place that made the dog growl. It took no notice of her this time, but kept forward with great caution, growling so low down in its throat that it seemed to be swallowing its own voice. A queer purring noise, such as a very big cat might make, broke on the ears of Pam. The dog heard it too, and growled more fiercely than before. Pam had a cold sensation, and her limbs seemed suddenly paralyzed. She lifted one foot with a great effort, and took a step forward, tried to lift the other, failed, and would have fallen, for she trembled so badly, only she gripped the slender stem of a young spruce growing close to the edge of the tote road and clung to it, quite helpless from the overmastering terror that seized upon her. Without a doubt, that was the same terror which saved her life. If she had not been so badly scared, she would have moved forward when the dog went, as it was. She clung to the trunk of the tree, and a rough bark brustled her. As it was, she clung to the tree, and the rough bark brustled her bare hands, her heart beating so fast it made her feel downright sick. The broken door of the shack was half open. The dog was close to it now, creeping and creeping, as if ready to spring. The purring sound had dropped to silence, and a minute passed, which seemed to Pam as long as hours. Then came an awful ear-splitting yell, and a lithe gray creature hurled itself out from the shattered door like an arrow from a bow straight at the dog. Pam heard a shriek of pure terror, yet had no idea that it was herself who had screamed. The dog swerved, and the lithe gray thing hit the ground beside it, and the dog and the unknown furry were rolling around in the deadliest combat. The dog would be killed, Pam was sure of it, and she simply could not stand by to see her dumb friend done to death. Instead of running away, which under the circumstances would have been the highest discretion, she dashed toward the door of the shack, intending to get a hold of the piece of wood which might do for a weapon. She almost reached she almost reached the door when outbounded another creature, sinuous of body, gray of hue, with thick head, short ears, and fretted breath that seemed to smite her like a poison blast as the beast bowed its head over its mad rush to get away. Pam was somewhat stunned by her fall, for her head had struck against the stump, and she lay where she had been flung to, dazed to rise. She came to her senses to find a weirdly disheveled figure helping her to her feet, 
a man with a familiar voice, but face so smothered in dirt and blood that it was not easy to remember where she had seen him before. Then she recalled the man whom, at first, she had supposed to be a tramp. He was speaking to her, but she had difficulty in understanding what he said, for he mumbled so, and his mouth was bleeding. Did the beast claw you, say now? Did he claw you? He was asking with desperate anxiety. Pam put her hand to her head. It was a fearful bang I had where my head struck the tree, but I don't think I'm hurt anywhere else. But you, oh, what will you do? You are most fearfully wounded, she cried, fairly appalled at his condition. Most baguette shook his head. I have a few scratches where the beast clawed me, but it isn't worth talking about. It is lucky, though, that I heard you scream, for it might have gone hard with you and the dog if I had not been here. Is the dog killed? cried Pam, starting to run back to the spot where the plucky creature had been so mixed up in the fray with the savage gray animal of the senior shape. Moe stopped her with a gesture. No, it isn't dead, but it is a bit clawed about, and it will be a week or two before it is fit to walk again, I'm afraid. I'm going to carry it home for you, only I might as well fasten this door so that those beasts can't take shelter here again. What were they? asked Pam. She was shaking horribly still, and she still had a feeling of nausea that was horrible. Canada Lynx is in their book name, but we call them Indian Devils, and their name fits them to a nicety, he answered as he put his head into the tumble-down shack, but he hastily withdrew it. The odor from the animals which had been found at shelter there being unpleasantly overpowering. They are the cutest and wickedest of beasts and are found anywhere in the forest. They are very rare, though, and happily they are getting rarer. I had an uncle who was so badly clawed by one that he carried the marks to his grave. Fifty years ago, that must have been, and I have not heard of any in this neighborhood since. I shall be afraid to venture into the forest alone after this, cried Pam. And again she shivered violently, feeling deadly sick, and not understanding that the nausea was almost entirely due to the shock to her nerves. No, you won't, Mose contradicted her harshly, then drew the broken door closed and fastened it, so that no wild creature could get inside. You won't see that charming pair again. I'll be bound. There will be a score of men around hunting for them directly. Word goes round that they have been seen, and it is not likely that you will ever see another pair if you live in these parts until you are an old woman. Oh, the poor dog, cried Pam, as they reached the spot where the animal lay. It was already feebly trying to lick its wounds. It was already feebly trying to lick its wounds. A good sign, Moe told her, for it had been mortally wounded. It would have lain still and no trouble at all. He lifted it carefully, as if it had been a baby, and then went striding back on the way to Ripple, while Pam stumbled along in the rear. He was bleeding from his numerous hurts, but he would not let her bind him up with her handkerchief, and he stalked on ahead with the savage dignity which he had always connected with an Indian chief. It was beginning to snow, but not with the leisurely falling flakes to which Pam had been accustomed in England. The air was suddenly full of white smothers, fine as dust, which filling the eyes and nose and mouth all at once set up such a choking and confusion that Pam felt as if she would be suffocated.
The man in front grew into a distinct blur, although she was so close to him that by reaching out her hand she could have gripped his coat. A fear seized her that they would be lost and would both perish miserably. Her breath was beaten out of her by the sting of that awful cold, and she cried out sharply. Mo stopped so suddenly at the sound of her cry that she punted into him without being able to stop herself. What is wrong, miss? Have you hurt yourself? He asked in a jerky tone, for the dog was heavy, and he was short of breath. I thought we were lost, and the snow is awful, cried Pam. You are close home now. Here is the house, he said in a curvishing tone, just as one might speak to a frightened child. Pam peered through the snow blur, and there was just ahead the outline of the house, as he said. A moment later, the door was flung over, and they staggered into the room, where Sophie fell upon them in tearful thanksgiving that Pam had escaped with her life. The blizzard had come so suddenly that she had been frightened at the thought of Pam being exposed to its fury. While Pam explained the situation in a hurried and coherent fashion, Moe's Peggette was caring for the dog. Calling for hot water, he washed the wounds and bound them so that the dirt would not get into them. Then he made the animal as comfortable as possible on a bit of carpet and some cushions at the back of the stove, called for milk, warm milk, and fed it himself, taking as much care as if the creature had been a human being. But when they wanted to bring him water and bandages for his own hurts, he brushed them aside briskly, declaring that there was nothing needed for him. I want to get home for my gun. I must have a shot at that vermin if I can, he said hurriedly. I'm only sorry that I could not do for the one the dog had its teeth fixed in. Gee, but that critter has a grip on it, and no mistake. You cannot possibly go out in the storm. You will lose your way and perish, cried Pam. It is clearing, and I have faced worst weather, he answered briefly. He was so eager to be gone that Pam could not insist on his staying longer, especially as Sophie was curiously silent on the matter. Mose was quite right. The gloom was lifting, and the snowfall was thinner when he opened the door, and shutting it with a bang, disappearing from view. Not a cent could he accept for the work he had done, though Pam had begged him to take some money, if only to pay for the time he had wasted on her and her dog. He warned Pam to keep to the house for a day or two, until the lynx were either killed or driven away from the neighborhood, and then he was gone. It is dreadful to have him go like that, for I know he is badly hurt, and he saved my life twice over. If I had escaped the lynx, I certainly should have perished in the snow. It is so bewildering. Pam was distinctly tearful, for she was shaken by the nervous, racking experience she had gone through. Fancy most forget turning out like that, cried Sophie. I thought he was bad all through. Even the worst people have streaks of good in places, answered Pam. Chapter 9. Making the Best of It Quite a wave of excitement spread over the neighborhood when the news of Pam's encounter with the lynx got abroad. Hunting parties were organized, and enthusiastic young men spent nights of watching in the forest. When Nathan Grittens had three sheep mauled, the excitement grew to fever heat. Everything else was let slide, and the district rose as one man to rid the place of such serious menace the property. During these days, neither Pam nor Sophie went beyond the few cleared fields surrounding Ripple, 
Kindly neighbors visited them at intervals of every two or three days to see that they wanted for nothing, bring their mail, and take letters to post for them. The doctor rode in that direction when he had patients anywhere near, and Don showed up a brotherly devotion that set some private wonders in the mind of Sophie. Of course, he had always been kind to her, and better than most brothers, but she argued to herself that his conduct now was not according to nature, and she was shrewd enough to guess, and she was shrewd enough to guess that she was not the only chief reason of many journeys across the forest from his father's house at the coroner's. The doctor lived at coroner's because it was in the middle of everything, and although it appeared to be misnamed, it had really been so called because it stood at an angle corner of the hill, just where the creek went tearing down through the wooden defile to join the river and little below Hut's Crossing. The day after the second lynx was killed, a party of men with Don Grinson at their heads arrived at Ribble to bank the side of the house with snow. Pam inquired in rather a scared fashion of Sophie how much she had expected to pay for the work, but Sophie assured her that there would be no charge. She might, if she liked, to give them hot coffee all round when the work was finished, but nothing else was either expected or desired. Coffee and cakes it shall be, then, exclaimed Pam, commencing to roll her sleeves above her elbows. I shall have to make the cakes, though, for we have scarcely any in the house. I can manage it if I make haste. Make soda biscuit, that is the quickest, said Sophie. I will make up the fire for you, and I can bring the things for you, and wait upon you. No, they won't want you to help. It is hardly work for girls, and there is enough of them to do the work comfortably. I see Nathan Crittens is there, but I don't think Moe's Brigade is among the lot. I wonder whether he is better yet. Is he ill? I had not heard. Pam did not pause in her work. She was in too much of a hurry for that, but she looked at Sophie with considerable interest and some anxiety. She was remembering that she owed her life twice over to the ragged down-at-heel Moe's Brigade, who had the reputation of being the very laziest man in the township. Mrs. Bucket told me that he was bad. That was when she was here the other day before yesterday. But of course she is such a kindly old soul that she would say he was ill, even if it was only a lazy fit that was keeping him from work. There was a sound of a crash outside at this minute, and Pam cried out in alarm. But Sophie, who ran out to see what was the matter, came back to say it was nothing of great importance. Only Don, who had been on a ladder, making the snow, had taken a header into the drift. He was helping to pile higher. He was cut rather badly on the cheek, for he had fallen on a shovel, and he came in two to have his wounds washed and bandaged. Sophie cried out in dismay. Then she turned so white that it was Pam who left her cape-making and ran to offer first aid. No, the sight of a cut does not frighten me very much, she laughed as she dabbed the cut with a handkerchief dipped in warm water. I have three brothers, you see, so I have served an apprenticeship in looking after cuts and hurts of all sorts. It is the great pity that Mosbegat did not let you look after his hurts a bit that time when the lynx clawed him. Don winced as her hand came down rather heavily on the wound, but she was too startled by what he had said to notice that she had hurt him. Is Mose ill from his wounds, and is your father looking after him? Her eyes were anxious now, for she was in a measure responsible, or that was how she felt. Mose had gone off to Fredrickson, 
and he was going from there to St. John. So Reggie Furness said, This morning, Reggie is half-brother to Mose, you know, a poor half-starved kid who does chores for Mrs. Gritton's to earn his food. He told me this morning that Mose was real bad from his hurts, and I guessed it was largely his own fault for not keeping them clean. We ought to have made him get them washed, cried Pam, in acute distress. He was so careful to clean the wounds of the dog, but he would not hear of doing anything for himself. It was downright pig-headedness on his part, but he is like that, and it is of no use to worry about it, said Don, trying to put the best face on the matter that he could. Later on, when all of the men came in and were gathering about the stove, drinking coffee and eating soda biscuits hot from the oven, the talk turned again to Moe's baguette and what his stepbrother had said about his condition. It would not be so serious if he had been better nourished and a cleaner living man, said Nathan Griddens, his voice sounding mumbled by reason of his mouth being full of soda biscuit. But a whiskey-drinking, half-starved chap like that hasn't a chance when it comes to a case of blood poisoning. It is all my fault, Pam's voice was full of self-reproach. I ought to have insisted on his taking proper care. He saved my life twice on that dreadful day, and I just let him alone when I might have looked after him. I should rather like to see the person who could make Moe's Paget do anything he did not want to do, exclaimed Nathan with a great laugh, which was promptly echoed by the other men. Then they proceeded to tell Pam stories about the doings of Moe's Paget, whose father had been a mighty hunter and had lost his life in an encounter with a bear. Moe's has got courage of sorts. Moe's has got courage of sort, said one man between bites of the hot biscuit, to me, he always seemed a good sort, spoiled in the making. There is what would have made a decent man, only so much laziness and drunkenness. It is down underneath that keeps coming up and spoiling everything, don't you see? The other men nodded in perfect accord with his pronouncement. Then the talk veered to other things. The latest news from Europe, the chances of an extra severe winter, and the possibilities of gaining farming out west. But Pam, darting to and fro, waiting on these guests of hers, who came up to help her that day, kept repeating to herself that Moose had twice saved her life in one day, and so deserved her warmest gratitude. When she was out later to see the efforts of the snow banking, and cried out in dismay at the unsightly appearance of the house, much more like a cutting by the side of a dugout railway than anything. Is it so dirty to look at? She complained in confidence of Sophie, who had followed her out. It will be all right next time it snows, Sophie answered. It is the treading on it and the shoveling that makes it look dirty. The frost will not get in so easily, and a banked-up house is much warmer than one that is not banked. I think we ought to sleep downstairs at night now because of the stove. If you do not like to use your grandfather's room, we might put a bed in the best sitting room. We might use his room, then it would be aired if he should come back suddenly. Pam replied, then immediately thought how disastrous it would be for him to come back with the responsibility of Sam Buckle's death hanging over him. Sophie made no answer. She had tact and sympathy and was too fond of Pam to say or do anything which might add to the burden of her endurance. There was a slow monotone about the days now, and the nights were so long that some mornings it seemed as if the day would never dawn. The outside work was very little now, for acting on the advice of Nathan Grittis, Pam had sold the sheep 
when the first snow came. It was not wise to keep sheep through the winter in this forest district. If the weather was very severe, the wolves always gathered in bands, and a sheepfold, however well protected, would offer no serious obstacle to them. The pigs were also reduced in number, those that were left having comfortable quarters at the end of the barn. The cow was in the barn for permanency during this bad weather, and the rooster with half a dozen hens spent languid days in picking up the crumbs at the door of the house, or standing idly on one leg in the sunshine when there was any. The money from the sale of the pigs had been lodged with the storekeeper at the corner. That was Sophie's wisdom. The storekeeper had two prices for everything, one rather high price for people who wanted credit, and the other very reasonable, indeed, for the people who were able to lodge money with him at the beginning of the winter. The difference would mean the saving of many dollars at the end of the winter, as she was there to guard the interest of her grandfather, as she was there to guard the interest of her grandfather, Pam felt justified in spending so much of his money on necessities. The money she was to receive for the twenty acres of lumber would be banked for her grandfather's use should he come back to need it. Mrs. Buckle would not take back the twenty dollars she had lent to Pam to meet the needs of the old man if he should return, and that money was kept in the house to be handy if required. Pam spent laborious hours in the barn, sawing wood to keep the stoves going. Never had she realized what a lot of wood one stove could consume in twelve or fifteen hours, and when it became necessary to have a fire at night, also wood-cutting blade fare to become her sole occupation, but it was fine, healthy work, and it sent her to bed so tired that she slept without dreams until morning, and that was surely worthwhile, considering the unprotected condition of herself and Sophie. It had been snowing for two days without stopping, not a raging blizzard, but a steady downfall which had piled a thick layer of the most dazzling white all over the banked-up house, and had weighed down the forest trees until the air was filled with the creaking groaning and snapping of straining branches. Will anyone ever come near us again, do you expect? And were you ever shut up in such a fashion before, demanded Pam, as they sat down to breakfast on the third morning of their isolation? I have had it worse than this, Sophie answered. She was looking radiantly content this morning. It was mail day, and there would probably be a letter for her from George Lester, who was serving in the mounted police out in the wild Skeena County. Worse, Pam's eyebrows went up. To her, it did not seem possible that there could be anything worse than this white imprisonment walled in on every side with the silent but persistent fall of snow. Sophie laughed and nodded. Two years ago, I had to go over and keep house for Aunt. Two years, I had to go over and keep house for Aunt Marion while she went to Europe. She lives ever so far from here, right away in the Beechwood district, beyond Selkirk. Her husband, Uncle Horace, had to go to the town for stores. It came on to snow as it had been doing these last two days, and he could not get back and I was alone with Leo and Winnie, the two children. Leo was ten and Winnie six. The worst of it was our stores were nearly out. We had so little kerosene that we had to creep to bed when it got dark and stay there until daylight came again. We had no sugar, the flour was almost out, and it was nearly a week before anyone could get through 
to help us. What did you do? gasped Pam. Oh, the best we could. We told each other other things and taught the children how to spell, and we recited the multiplication table every day. Their father said that their education had taken great strides by the time he came home. It was just a question of making the best of it and not worrying. Of course, it was horrid being short of provisions, but we had potatoes and a pail of lard and some bacon, so we might have been worse off. Sophie, you are one of the world's splendid women, and I am just so proud to know you. Pam sprang up from her seat as she spoke and swept Sophie a low blow. They were both laughing over the exaggerated difference when Don came gliding out from the forest on snowshoes and they rushed to the door to give him a welcome. I tried to get here last night, but the strap of my shoe broke, and as I sank in over my knees, I knew that it would not be safe to try. Don was mostly apologetic, but Sophie cried out in horror that he should have even thought of risking his life in such a fashion. Father was out, said Don. He was called to a woman who was very ill on the other side of the ridge. He did not get home until dawn this morning, and then Nathan Grittens came for him to go over their place and have a look at that boy, Reggie Furness. Nearly starved, the poor kid had been, I should fancy, since most baguette had been away. He has been living on in their shack, alone, doing for himself, he called it. Doing without would be a better way of expressing it, I fancy. He fainted whilst he was doing chores at Gritton's place yesterday, and Galena put him to bed there. He didn't get better as she had hoped, and was off his head a good bit in the night, and she was so scared about him that she sent Nathan to get father the first thing this morning. When is Mose coming back? asked Sophie, who was making fresh coffee for her brother whilst Pam fried bacon at the stove. When he is better, I suppose, replied Don. He has had a near squeak for his life, I should fancy, and it would take him a little while to get over it. Reggie will be all right now. He is with the Grittens, and Galena will not let him go until Mose comes home. She is real kind-hearted, only I always find that a little of her goes a long way, but she means all right, and that is the chief thing. Here is your letter, sister, and such a fat one, and an industrious fellow is George, though it beats me what he can find to say. Sophie took the letter with a look of positive rapture on her face, and retired to the bedroom, where the fire was not yet out, to read it in peace. This is just what Don wanted and had counted upon. He liked to talk to Pam best when no one else was by, but this morning she was abstracted and rather dull, a wonderful thing for her. Don thought perhaps it was because there was no letters for her, and he hastened to cheer her by saying he did not believe the English mail was in, for they had said at the post office that no European letters had been received. I was not thinking of letters, replied Pam, and her smile was rather wan. Mother might not write this mail. She has not much time, you know. Indeed, I always used to write her letters for her, and I think she must miss me so dreadfully at the business, for she always hated writing. I am feeling so bad about poor Reggie Furness. I have never seen him but I am constantly hearing about him, and in a way I am responsible for his have been left in such a plight. If I had only insisted upon cleaning his brother's wounds, they might not have done so badly. 
and then the poor boy would not have been left to such hardship. Why not go a bit farther back when you are at it, said Don impatiently. If Mose had only been a clean living fellow, he might not have been so susceptible to blood poisoning. If only he had a pleasanter manner, he would have accepted your offer of water and washed his hurts himself. Oh, I have no patience with all this sentimental sympathy that is wasted on that miserable pair. All the same, you need not allow it to color all your behavior. When you appear in polite society, remarked Pam demurely, whereon Don glared at her in downright anger for a moment. Then they both burst out laughing, and the air cleared at once. He offered to teach her how to walk on snowshoes, and Pam, delighted at the prospect of getting outdoors, ran to wrap up warmly. Sophie came too, and for the next two hours there was riotous fun on the open space before the house. The snow was so soft that every spill meant floundering in billowy clouds of white dust. Pam went down so many times that at the end of the lesson she declared herself tired out. But she had learned to stand erect, to pass one foot before the other, and then to poise herself properly for the next step, so that she was fairly well on over the worst of drudgery of learning how to walk on snowshoes. The snow will pack in a few days, then you will get on fine, said Don, who was proud of his pupil. Pack, do you mean that it will go away? she asked with a bewildering air. It won't go away under normal conditions before March or April. By packing, we mean settling down in a close and firm mass. After a few weeks, it gets so hard, anyone can walk on it without sinking in, even if he has no snowshoes. That is, when life begins to get worth living in these parts, we have parties nearly every night, and we contrive to see more of each other than can be managed in all the rest of the year. Don found himself growing almost eloquent under the spell of Pam's interested face, and he launched into vigorous accounts of the pleasures of winter parties that lasted until he had to go. Your brother must think that I am made of queer stuff if he imagines that I am going here and there enjoying myself this winter, said Pam, when Don had gone and the two girls were busy in the house again. I do not see that there is anything to prevent you from going around and seeing folks when you have the chance, Sophie answered, looking a little surprised, for she knew what a social person Pam was, and she could not understand the reason of her poised abstinence from party-going. Do you think that people would care to have me at their parties when they all know that my grandfather will have to stand for his trial for something that is next door to murder when he is found? Pam's tone was very bitter. She had been musing a great deal during these days of isolation, and the result was that deep down in her heart, she was getting absolutely scared at the thought of going about and seeing people. Going to church at the corners once a fortnight was bad enough, but then it was possible to sit at the back and leave early. Church going could not be called social intercourse either, and the less she had to do with her neighbors while she was under a cloud, the better. But Sophie only laughed, and putting her hands on Pam's shoulders gave her a gentle shake, as if anyone thought the worst of you for a thing you cannot help. Besides, we all want to make much of you for the dear, plunky way in which you have tackled a difficult situation. You will have to find a better excuse than that if you want to be unsociable. Chapter 10. Someone's Desperate Plight 
The weeks of winter wore on, and Christmas passed in quite a whirl of hard work and social activities. There were packing bees, and when everyone worked with perspiring energy at packing apples in boxes and barrels for sending to the cities, Pam liked that work. The apples reminded her of summer, and they linked her up with warm and sunshine. There were also bees for making lard, but they were not so interesting. The fat portions of several pigs were cut into small squares and boiled down in great pans, then strained in greasy horrid work. But, like the other unpleasant tasks, it was very necessary, and as no one else seemed to mind the grease, Pam decided that it was of no use Pam decided that it was no use to make a fuss about it either. Christmas brought the most acute homesickness for Pam, who had never before been away from her family at the great festival. They wanted her rather badly too, which fact did but add to her pain. Greg was ill with rheumatic fever, very ill, her mother wrote. Pam knew that the doctor's bill for Muriel's illness was not all paid off yet, so it was ghastly to think of another being piled on to it. Mrs. Walsh was in a great trouble about Pam, and she wrote that as soon as Greg was able to leave his bed, Jack would travel to New Brunswick to help her. It was that last piece of information that gave Pam the courage to wear a smiling face and to hold her own at the gatherings which the forest dwellers beguiled the winter nights. It had been difficult to travel the forest ways after dark, in the summertime and in the fall. Now with the snow on the ground and the trees bare of leaves, it made little difference while the moonlight nights were almost as light as the days. Don Grenson had his sleigh with fur robes made from the skins of animals he had shot himself, quite a luxurious vehicle, and he would come driving along after dark to take Sophie and Pam out to the various gatherings. The dog would be left to guard the house, and the two went away feeling certain that all would be right until they came back again. The new year came in with raging storms, and these were followed at the middle of the month by still colder weather, such cold as Pam had never even dreamed of before. Then people began to talk of having heard wolves howling round the lone farms that night. The children were not allowed to go to school alone, and men traversing the forest after dark carried firearms. Even Pam carried an ancient but useful fowling piece, which she walked the forest ways. She had learned to shoot, and she could manage to hit the thing she aimed at. One day she contrived to shoot a hare, and although she cried over it all the way home, she had to admit that it was uncommonly good eating, and made the most agreeable change in their usual food. Besides, as Sophie pointed out, the creature would probably have fallen a victim to a fox or a wolf, or it might have perished miserably of starvation. I will take the next hair I shoot to Mrs. Buckle. She is not very well, Amanda told me. Pam rose from her seat at table with largely increased courage and determination. If there was a worse fate for hares than being shot, she might as well kill a few and help her neighbor. You better go soon. It gets dark so early. I can do the dishes. In fact, I shall be... Glad to move about a little, for I am nearly frozen with sitting still. Sophie shivered, for the day, though bright, was intensely cold. I will be off at once then. Pam was wriggling into her coat with all speed. If I get anything, I shall go straight to Mrs. Buckle before coming back. 
Have you any messages for her? You can tell her that I have nearly finished mending all those sheets, and when they are done, I will start Amanda's frock right away. Sophie was darting to and fro as she talked, intent on getting a noonday meal cleared and dishes washed. But she came out of the door to watch Pam start and to beg her to be careful with the gun, which had an uncomfortable trick of kicking in unaccustomed hands. Pam secured her hair without much trouble, and walking briskly across the clearing fields and over the boundary line where the broken fence would never be repaired again, she walked in upon Mrs. Buckle and bestowed the hair which had fallen to her gun. She delivered the message also, and then turned back towards Ripple, quickening her steps a little, for it was later than she had intended to be, and there were chores waiting to be done before dark. She had almost reached the fence again when she saw a man moving toward her along the trail, and her heart gave a great bound as she recognized the slouching figure of Moe Spaghetti. She had not seen him for since the day when he saved her life twice over, and now seeing that he looked as if he were going to avoid her by turning into a cross trail, she shouted to him to stop and then ran to catch him. Are you better? she asked a trifle breathlessly. She was annoyed at the man's rudeness and turning away when she wanted to speak to him, but that was just as he had always treated people. Sophie had told her, and there was nothing to be done save to ignore his rudeness as much as possible. Yes, thank you, miss, he replied, and then his hand went with drudging motion toward his cap, and he lingered awkwardly, as if waiting to see if she had any more to say to him. I was very sorry to hear that you had been ill from the wounds you got when you came to my help that day. Pam's color was coming and going. She felt that the man did not want to talk to her, and yet she positively had to do something to let him know she was not ungrateful. He shifted from one foot to the other in an uneasy manner. It ain't nothing to worry about, miss, he said. The doctor told me straight that I had only myself to thank for being so bad, and I suppose he ought to know if anyone did. He was honest about it, too, and said just what he thought. It would have not been much lost to anyone if I had gone under, but I pulled through, as you see. It would have been a very lasting regret to me, said Pam, with crushing dignity. Then, because she did not know what to say, she asked if Reggie were better, although Mrs. Buggle had told her only half an hour ago that the boy was doing work as usual. He is quite well again now, thank you, miss, said Mose. He moved as if to go on, hesitated, stopped, then lowering his voice to a cautious undertone, although probably there was no one within half a mile of them, he said, Do you know that the old man has been seen? Grandfather, do you mean? cried Pam, and the color ebbed out of her face, leaving her cheeks a little ashen. Mose Pagat nodded, gave her a swift but fertile glance, and then his gaze dropped to the ground. Where, she cried. Her tone was impervious now. The man seemed so unwilling to speak, but no, she must. I ran up against a fellow in St. John who knew him. He said that he had seen the old man at work in a lumber camp away in the back creek of the Miracanchi River. Was the man quite sure? Pam forced the question from her parched lips while her heart beat with sledgehammer force. 
I don't see how he could have been mistaken, replied Mose. The fellow knew Wreck as well as I do. He said the old man did not seem to want to be talked to, which was natural under the circumstances. You need not look so scared, miss. The man wouldn't give him away to the police. We none of us would do that. I shouldn't have told you, only I thought you would be glad to know the poor man was alive. Pam nodded, for she could not speak. She felt nearly choked, and a dreadful doubt had crept into her mind as to whether she was glad that her grandfather was alive. She had sought tirelessly for his dead body, and if she had found it, she would have grieved for him, cut off untimely as it seemed to her. In such a case, there would have been an end of her fear, but now she would know no peace. She would always be fearing, for the police would find him, and that he would have to stand his trial for being the cause of Sam Buckle's death. We would not betray him to the police, said Mose again, in a tone more empathetic than before. It is his turn today. It might be ours tomorrow, and I take it that we should do as we would be done by. Good day, miss. Lifting his cap, he turned away abruptly and walked off, and Pam stood staring after him with fearful dismay in her heart. To be linked even in seeming with a man of this sort was dreadful. He would not betray her grandfather to the police because he might be in fear of being betrayed himself another day. Her grandfather would be regarded as a pal by this down-at-hills tramp. Oh, it was hateful. She stood with clenched hands staring at the trail by which the man had disappeared until warned by the cold that it was not wise to linger. As she went her way home, she debated with herself as to whether she would tell Sophie, but she shrank in her hurt pride from the humiliation of such a confession, and so decided that for the present she would keep the knowledge to herself. Reaching Ripple, she had to hurry over the evening chores, for she had lingered longer with Mrs. Buckle than she should have done, and the meeting with Mose on the way home had, of course, made her later still. She looked so white and pinched when she came indoors to supper that Sophie cried out in dismay at her appearance, thinking she must be ill. I am tired, that is all. We will go to bed early tonight, Pam answered and strove to hide her aching heart under a brave show of good spirits until she could lie down and shut her eyes on her misery. Sophie nodded and said no more. She supposed that Pam was homesick. She understood the symptoms now and never bothered or fussed when the attack was extra severe. Pam's conscience was a bit troubled about the deception, for it was like defrauding Sophie of what it was her right to know, to hide this news of the old man having been seen unrecognized, but she could not bring herself to talk of it. They were getting to bed in the room, which had been racked prevails, when they were startled by a hideous howl all around the house. What is it? asked Pam, her eyes wide with alarm. The dog was raging and tearing around the kitchen, and barking fit to burst itself. Wolves, murmured Sophie, and she looked so badly scared that Pam railed her own courage and began to make fun of her. Suppose they are wolves outside. They cannot get inside. So what does it matter? Of course, the poor dear old dog may have nervous breakdown from too much barking, but otherwise I can't see that we are to be much the worse. The noise is so weird. A wolf howl always gets on 
my nerves faltered Sophie, who was white and trembling from fright. Pam, who had been undressing, now began to put on her garments again, and with quick, determined fingers. What are you going to do? cried Sophie in dismay. You are surely, surely not going out of doors. Why, Pam, it would be not safe. It would be rather silly to go out, seeing that there is nothing to be gained by it, said Pam. I am not going out, but I am going upstairs to see if I can get a shot at the creatures. Your brother cleaned that rifle of grandfather's last week, and I might be able to kill one of those singing beasts yonder. And just think how well it should sound in one of my letters home. Sophie shivered, but uttered no further protest. At the worst, Pam would only catch a cold, and if she stopped the howling by scaring the wolves away, she would have accomplished something well worth doing. She heard Pam go upstairs and heard her trampings to and fro on the bare floors. There was silence for a little. Then came another burst of wolf music. A shot rang out, and shortly after, Pam came down, saying she believed she had driven the wolves away. The two went to bed and sleeping without disturbance until morning. A brilliant day it was, with blazing sun and sparkling frost. The doctor drove up soon after breakfast, and for wonder he had Mrs. Grunson with him. They wanted to know if Pam and Sophie would like to go to a lard-making bee at Hunt's Crossing that night. Mindful of the howling of the wolves last night, both Pam and Sophie declared that they would rather be at home, so Mrs. Grunson was given a message for Don, telling him not to come, as they had no fancy for lord-making just then. The doctor said a quiet word to Pam as he was going away. Have you heard the rumor going around just now that your grandfather has been seen at work in a lumber camp in Moranchi? Yes, most baguette told me yesterday, faltered Pam, and then she added in an outburst of candor, but I feel so bad about it. Why has he never sent to see how it fares with home? Why has he never come back for the money he has left behind? It was not much, but every little helps when a man has to earn his daily bread. I have thought about it and thought about it until I began to wonder whether the person might not be mistaken, and if the man he saw was not grandfather at all. Dr. Grinson nodded thoughtfully. That was just my impression, he agreed. Still seeing that the fellow had nothing to gain by setting the story afloat, there seems to be no reason beyond actual fact why he should have done so. There is nothing to be done that I can see except to await developments. If it is not true, it is still very bothering that the rumor should have been started because it puts the assumption of the old man's death farther away. I mean that supposing he is not heard of again, you will have to take the date at which this man says he saw him at the lumber camp as the last time he was seen alive. That is three months later, don't you see? Pam did see, and the scene brought no comfort with it. She could not tell the doctor that she was deadly ashamed of being related to her own grandfather. She could not explain that the disgrace and humiliation that had come to her were almost too hard to be borne. For the remainder of the day, she chopped and sawed wood with great vigor, working off the depression which threatened to break her down. She had a sick longing for someone of her own to turn to, her mother or Jack, as a matter of fact, 
She had never been in the habit of leaning on her mother, and Jack was mostly sitting in judgment upon her, so that the two had not been greatly in sympathy in those old days, which in retrospect looked so sheltered and so dear, not a word had she said to Sophie as yet about her grandfather having been seen, and she did not believe that the doctor had spoken of it either. By and by she would tell Sophie indeed, it would be necessary for her to be warned, as the old man might come home when he thought the search for him had died down somewhat. Very silent and absorbed was Pam that evening, and Sophie, thinking that she was tired, suggested that they should go to bed early. There was no probability of visitors tonight. Everyone would be gone to the lard-making frolic at Hunt's Crossing. There was no reason at all why they should sit up if they would be more comfortable in bed. When Sophie proposed it, Pam rose and stretched her arms above her head, declaring that there was nothing that she would like better. It was at that moment that the howl of wolves sounded somewhere near the house, and Pam's sleepiness vanished as if it had never been. Those wretched creatures round the place again, she cried, the uncanny beasts. I thought I had given them something to remember me by last night. We won't go to bed yet a while, for I want to see if I can't bag one. If they come as close to the place as they did last night, I ought to be able to manage it. We will get so cold, objected Sophie. I will put on my thick coat on. Honestly, I can't stand that noise, and I'm going to end it somehow. Or you know the reason why. Your mother said it was the smell of the pigs that attracted them, but we cannot afford to get rid of our pigs, so the only thing is to show the wolves that this is not a healthy neighborhood. Taking the gun, Pam went upstairs into the cold, unused bedrooms, putting her lamp on the table of the chamber in which she had slept on first coming to Ripple. She passed into the next room and shut the door behind her, groped her way across the floor until she reached the window, softly opening the casement. She peered out into the night. It was intensely cold. There was no moon, but the stars shone with a hard brilliance and the soft radiance of the snow made even distant objects visible. Soon a long-drawn howl broke the stillness, and this was promptly answered by yet another and yet another. The wolves seemed to be all around the place, but Pam realized that they were by no means close, and she was just going to draw in her head because of the singing quality of the cold when she caught sight of a figure gliding in and out amongst the trees, which was on the side grew quite closer to the house. Her heart beat violently. Who was it that lurked yonder among the trees instead of openly approaching the house? It was her grandfather, who pressed by his necessities had found his way back to his home. Her sense of disgrace slipped from her as if it had never been. Her grandfather was out there among the trees, then she must do her best to induce him to come in and be sheltered from the cold. He would be quite safe for that, one night at least. He might even lie hidden for days in that lone place without any outside being the wiser. Grandfather, she cried out. Grandfather, is it you? Come to the door and I will run downstairs and let you in. It is quite safe. There was no answer to this. Only to her straining eyes, it seemed that the figure gliding in and out amongst the trees waved to her, then sank farther back into the shadow. 
becoming an indistinguishable blur in the groom. Grandfather, don't be afraid. You will be quite safe, she called out again, and not waiting this time to get an answer, she shut the window and, groping her way to the door of the next room, picked up the lamp and hurried down the stairs. Sophie met her at the bottom wearing an anxious look. Pam, what is the matter? I heard your voice and came to see if you wanted me. It is Grandfather out there in the cold, and I am trying to get him inside. Think of it, Sophie. An old man like that, wandering without shelter on such a night? Your Grandfather, cried Sophie in amazement. Pam, are you sure? Just think. It is months ago since he was heard of, and we thought him dead. Pam groaned, if only she had told Sophie when she had heard the rumor. It was so senseless to keep a thing like that to herself. He is not dead. He has been seen. The knowledge is all over the place. But I was ashamed and silly, and I would not tell you. Please forgive me, dear, and help me all you can. Pam was fumbling with the fastening of the door as she spoke. She was so clumsy in her anxiety and distress that she could not get it unfastened, and Sophie came to help. Pam, you should have told me. I cannot help you if I do not know, she said in a quiet way, and that was all the reproach that Pam ever heard from her, a heavenly sent friend for such a time of trouble. The door was open at last, and Pam stood on the threshold, peering out at the night. The lamp which Sophie was holding in the background threw a shaft of light that sharply outlined her figure, making its anxious pose as plain as she spoken word. Grandfather, where are you? Breathlessly, Pam waited for the answer to her call, but night came. Only presently the howl of a wolf sounded much nearer than before. This was answered from another direction. Then all was silent again. The two girls stood on the threshold. The two girls stood on the threshold, the keen cold wrapping them around. Then suddenly Pam remembered that Sophie had only her indoor garments on. Then suddenly Pam remembered that Sophie only had her indoor garments on and might take a severe chill. Go, dear, put a coat on and a muffler. Cover your head up, or you will have a bad toothache tomorrow, she said urgently, adding as if by an afterthought, I am going over to see those trees yonder to see if I can find the poor old man and bring him into the house. No, you do not. Unless I come too, burst out Sophie with an explosive vigor that showed how dead and earnest she was. If you will not wait until I can get a cloak, I will just come as I am. I will wait, only make haste, Pam jerked the words out, for she was feeling nearly desperate. She did not dare let the dog out, although the creature was raging to and fro in the inner room. She was afraid that it would go in pursuit of the wolves and be torn to pieces by them. What a long time Sophie was. Pam felt that she could not wait another minute, especially as a long-drawn howl close at hand told her that the unpleasant beast were getting much nearer to the house. Then Sophie came out of the inner room, wrapped to her eyes, and holding the dog by her handkerchief, slipped through its collar. Don't let it loose. We shall never get it back again tonight, said Pam, and then she stepped out onto the snow, closely followed by Sophie and the dog, which strained and whimpered in its efforts to get free. Grandfather, it is I, Pam Walsh. There is nothing to fear. 
You can come into the house, at least for tonight. Pam sent her voice out in the reassuring shout, which must have carried far into the lone place, but there was no reply, although they lingered long, standing in the shadow of the trees and hearing the howling of the wolves in the distance. What is that? whispered Sophie sharply, as Pam's heart gave a sudden leap of dread. It was a faint cry for help that reached their ears, and at the sound the dog struggled to be free, tugging and tugging at the lead just as if it understood. Come along, he is over there. I expect he has fallen and has hurt himself, cried Pam, dashing across the snow at a great rate, followed by Sophie and the dog. Help, help. The cry was louder and more urgent now. The person in shovel had wavering, crackled voice like an old man's, and there was not a shadow of doubt in the mind of either girl that it was Rack Purville who was calling for help. Why he should have been so close to the place and then have gone away again puzzled Pam, but she put it down to his natural fear of a police trap and his ignorance of what kind of girl his granddaughter really was. They went on and on, answering the call, searching and searching, yet never finding what they looked for. Suddenly there had been an awful scare, for there had came a scurrying rush of feet, and an animal of some kind bounded past them, followed by some four or five wolves in full cry. Pam lifted her rifle and fired wildly as there was no time to take aim, and at that moment the dogs wrenched itself free from Sophie's grasp and tore away in mad pursuit. What was it? Oh, what was it? cried Pam. A young moose, I expect, answered Sophie. Then she took hold of Pam, saying urgently, Come home, dear. We can do no good here. Chapter 11 Who was it? Neither Pam nor Sophie had realized how far away they had wandered when they followed that faint cry for help. Indeed, just at the first, Pam could not think where they were or which direction they ought to take to find the house. The night was clouding over, the fine brilliance was gone, and a chill wind moaned through the leafless trees. The dog had not come back. Pam had whistled and then called until she was tired. Then she turned to help Sophie back, blaming herself bitterly because she had followed that will-of-the-wisp call for help, which had given them such a fruitless chase. Ah, the ejaculation was forced from Sophie as her foot slipped on an outstanding route, and she went down with a crash. You poor thing, oh you poor thing, cried Pam, who was more remorseful than before. It was fearfully clumsy of me, and now I have hurt my foot, Pam. Whatever shall we do? There was tragic dismay in Sophie's tone, and it was, and it found its echo in the heart of Pam, in whose ears the howling of the wolves seemed to be still sounding. I will get you home, somehow, if I have to carry you on my back, she cried valiantly. It seemed to be half the battle to be brave outwardly, and indeed the sound of her own voice speaking cheerfully took away a lot of her secret fear. I am quite sure that you cannot carry me, for I am as big as you, and heavier, said Sophie, and Pam knew this was true, for they had weighed each other only two days before when they were using the big scale that were in the barn. Perhaps I could hop on one foot, like Robin, if you held me up. I will hold you, replied Pam. Come along. It is much too chilly 
to linger out here. I don't want to be obliged to render first aid for frostbite. It will be quite as much as I can do to doctor your hurt foot. I think it is going to snow again. Ah, that was a flake I felt on my face. Sophie, we must make haste. No matter how it hurts you, dear, I can't find my way in this falling snow. It bewilders me so dreadfully, and to lose our way means that we must perish miserably almost within sight of home. Clutch me tightly, and don't take any notice if I groan, muttered Sophie, who was standing on one foot now and stealing her courage to endure. I'm not made of heroic stuff, but we have to get home, as you say, no matter at what cost. A short distance was traversed. To Sophie it seemed like miles. She had uttered no sound of pain, but what it cost her to put her hurt foot to the ground, no one but herself could know. But it was death to linger, and pain did not count when compared with the greater terror of the forest at night. Then Pam called out in glad relief that she could see the house. Sophie gathered up her courage and endured a little longer, and they passed forward at the best pace they could make. There is a light in our room. Did we leave one there? asked Pam in bewildered tone, as if she half led, half carried Sophie the remaining distance to the door. I am sure that I did not, for I went into the room in the dark. At least there was no light except the glimmer from the stove. Then Grandfather has come home, announced Pam, unless indeed the stove was somehow contrived to set the place on fire. Go and see, go and see, cried Sophie, wrenching herself free from Pam's supporting grip and pushing her forward. Don't trouble about me. I can manage. Hurry, Pam, hurry, or the house may be burned down, and think how helpless we are. I am not helpless, and I don't think it's fire. It doesn't flicker. Most likely it's Grandfather. Oh, I do hope that he will be nice to us, Pam darted ahead as she spoke, and opening the door, burst with imperious haste into the living room. This appeared to be exactly as they left it. The lamp was standing on the table, and the stove was sending out a cheerful glow, and the place was as cozy and comfortable as any home could be. One rapid glance round Pam gave, and then pushed open the door in the best sitting room. All was dark here, but she knew her way too well to stumble over the furniture, and crossing the floor with a brisk, determined tread, she pushed open the door on the inner room, which they had been using as a bedroom. The place was not on fire. Her first glance told her that. Her second revealed the fact that no one was there. Then, all at once, she realized that someone who had lightened the lamp, which stood on the table by the window, and who had then been at the desk in the corner and wrenched open the lid. A little inarticulate cry escaped her. She seemed to understand what had happened so well. Her grandfather doubtless been frightened from his work in the lumber camp when he was recognized, and he had made his way home, hard-pressed perhaps for money. But finding his home occupied, and being afraid to make himself known to his granddaughter, who was of course a stranger to him, he had hovered about the place and bewildered them from the house, luring them away from the place on false trail. Then he must have hurried home, entered the house, having gone straight to the desk in his own room, and pulled it open by force. Great force he must have used, for it was a strong old desk of the homemade variety, and it would need a powerful wrench to get it open. 
A hasty inspection showed her that the money was gone, not only the amount which she had found there when she had opened the desk with her own key, but also the twenty dollars which Miss Buckle had given her as a loan and had refused to take back. Pam leaned against the rifled desk with a queer mixture of relief and repulsion in her heart. She was thankful that the old man had not stayed to be sheltered and hidden by her. It was humiliating beyond words to have someone belonging to her who was in the unfortunate case of being wanted by the police. It would have been horrid for Sophie to have been mixed up, even indirectly, with a matter of this sort, seeing that Sophie was going to be married to a member of the mounted police force. The repulsion was because, try as she might, Pam could not fight down a bitter dislike for the man who would beat another man, however much in the wrong, as poor Sam Buckle had been beaten. It was horrible, it was brutish, and she was ashamed of being descended from an individual with such cruel and callous nature. Then she remembered Sophie, leaving the room as she found it, open desk and the lamp burning, and everything, she hurried back through the best sitting room to find, when she reached the living room, that Sophie had crept into the house and, shutting the door, had sunk down on the nearest bench, too exhausted to go any further. The place is not on fire, shouted Pam in a cheery tone, so there is no danger of her having to take refuge for the night with the cow and the pigs, or worse still, of our having to convey ourselves as far as Mrs. Buckles for a night lodging. But someone has been here while we were hunting for the supposed person in trouble in the forest, and before I attend to that foot of yours, I am going to run the house just to make sure that the someone has really taken himself off again. You must not go alone. I will come with you, said Sophie, making a valiant attempt to bear yet more suffering without crying out. Indeed, you will do no such thing, cried Pam with decision. If you are equal to any more exertion, just creep a little nearer to the stove and get good warm while I go my rounds. Oh, I'm not afraid. I shall take the poker. It is light and handy, and I can make very good use of it if need arose. I do not doubt it, murmured Sophie in honest admiration. Then clinging to the furniture, she crept slowly to the low seat by the stove, which Pam had made from the half old apple barrel, and sinking onto it, she thankfully gave up her Spartan pose and did not even try to feel brave any longer. Pam went back to the bedroom for the other lamp and made an exhaustive inspection of the room. It would have been difficult for a cat to have remained hidden in places where she searched for a full-grown man, but as she told herself in such a vigorous undertone, in such a case it did not do to take any risks, and she meant to be quite sure that they were alone before she went to sleep. The bedroom inspected, she opened the window, and setting hold of the heavy wooden shutter, she dragged it across the window and slipped the bolt onto the socket. They were now as secure as bolts and bars could make them. Carrying the lamp with her, she then inspected the sitting room and passed out to the living room, where Sophie crouched by the stove. Pam, the dog has come home. It's scratching at the door. Sophie's voice had a distinct sound of tears in it. But this Pam ignored for the present, being too busy to have time for consolation just then. I will let the silly beast in, and I'm very much hoped that it found itself out 
of the running when it came to chasing wolves. It is valiant enough to attack anything, but it has no sense at all in regard to being beaten, she remarked as she crossed the floor and slipping back the bolt to let the dog into the house. The animal jumped about her in ecstasy and joyfulness at being indoors again. Then it sniffed curiously about and finally went to the door of the sitting room and whined to be let in. Ah, the wise beast, cried Pam, with a catch in her breath. Do you see? It knows that its old master had been here. Evidently it thinks he is here still. No, my dear dog, you are not going into that room, and equally you are not going out into the night again. You are going to stay here with Sophie while I go to examine the upper story of this desirable and beautiful residence. Oh, Pam, how frivolous you sound, cried Sophie in a rather shocked tone. To hear you, no one would dream of what we had gone through tonight. Oh, I never saw anything more horrible than the wolves chasing that poor moose. I cannot even imagine anything worse, can you? Yes, Pam's face paled a little as she turned to go upstairs. I can imagine how very much worse it would have been if those wolves had been chasing us. I feel that we were horribly impulsive and indiscreet to go out as we did, and it is a fine thing for us that nothing worse was the result. The dog followed her up around the stairs and sniffed around the rooms in an inquiring fashion. Once it lifted its head as if about to howl, but happened, but happening to see the movement, Pam gripped the creature by its collar, shaking it vigorously. No, you don't. Not if I know it, she said sharply. That poor girl downstairs has enough to bear by way of nervous strain tonight, without any uproar from you, to add to her burden. You are sure that it was your grandfather who came tonight? Sophie asked later, when her ankle had been bathed and bandaged, and she was lying at peace in bed. Yes, about as sure as if I had seen him, try as she would. Pam could not keep the scorn from her voice. He must have come indoors and have gone straight to his room, where he wrenched open the desk and took the money we had been keeping there for him. If it had been your grandfather, would he not have a key to the desk? Sophie stirred a little restlessly as she spoke. It was very disturbing to have a thing of this kind happen, and she thought she would be afraid to be left alone in the house after this, and, as a rule, she was left alone so much. He had a key, I suppose, seeing that the desk was locked, but he might have lost it, or he might have left it somewhere else in his baggage, if he had any baggage. A hundred things might have happened to make it necessary for him to break open his own desk in his own house like an ordinary thief, but, Sophie, we have got to keep the affair to ourselves. No one must know about his coming. Do you understand? Not even farther, demanded Sophie, lifting her head from the pillow to stare at Pam, who was undressing and rather spinning the business out because the stove was burning so well and there was such a sense of restful leisure in her heart. No, not even Dr. Grinson. Pam was very empathetic. You see... He might drop a chance of word or hint of what he had happened without in the least meaning to injure grandfather, of course, and the police might get a hold of it and follow up the clue. I should imagine it is not easy to cover one's tracks in winter, as it is in summer, 
And, Sophie, I believe that I should die with shame if the poor old man were taken and made to stand his trial. Poor Pam, murmured Sophie in the deepest, truest sympathy, but Pam wriggled her shoulders impatiently by way of expressing her distaste for pity. Proud Pam would be nearer the mark, she said. I am quite sure that at the bottom it is my private and personal pride which makes me suffer so badly at the mere thought of grandfather being taken. I never saw him, of course, and I never received any kindness direct from him. Even the money which paid my passage was sent for Jack. The way my mother has talked of him has not made it easy to feel any strong love for him. Yet I would do anything and suffer almost anything, rather than give the slightest clue to those whose business it is to find him. Then people must not know that we went out to find him tonight, said Sophie. She blinked sleepily at the lamp and was conscious of a rather acute disappointment. It would have made her feel almost like a heroine if she could have talked of that escape of theirs. She knew very well that she was not made of heroic stuff, and it would have given her a very solid satisfaction to have been able to speak of the wild chase they had witnessed when the pack of wolves dashed past them at the heels of the moose. No, indeed. Pam was more empathetic than ever. It was a mad thing to rush out of the house in a night like that. I did not realize what fearful risk we might be running until I saw that poor hunted moose. I do not know moose ever came so near to the houses before. I thought they kept entirely to the wild lands. They usually do, but pressed by winter and deep snow, they will come right into settled places, replied Sophie, who was plainly getting drowsy. I have known them come round the house at the corner, and they have even helped themselves to father's haystacks when the weather has been very severe. I cannot think what men are made of. I should hate to go moose hunting, cried Pam with a shiver. Wait until you have a taste for moose meat, murmured Sophie, and then she drifted into dreamland before she could say any more. Pam was very wide awake, and she sat for a long time crouched over the stove, her eyes fixed on the glowing embers, and her thoughts very busy with the future. She would have to work hard to get some more money ready for her grandfather, by the time he should need it. How long would the lot he had taken tonight last him? She had no first-hand knowledge of this habit to guide her. When he had been at home, he had been apparently something of a miser, unless, indeed, he had been very, very poor. Of course, he might make that money go for a long time, but she would never feel safe, and she must have some more for him if he needed it. Of course, there was the money for the black spruce, but she could not touch that. It was lodged in the bank in trust for her grandfather, if he should want it for his trial, and to ask for a portion of it might bring suspicion upon him. The hopelessness of it all weighed upon her as she sat brooding by the fire. Her grandfather might even choose to sell the house and land when she would be stranded in a strange country with only her own exertion and the kindness of friends to help her. She had left home with a brave determination to win a place for her brothers and in this land of promise. She had cheerfully faced the hardest and most laborious work just because she was holding their inheritance for them. 
but tonight the question in her mind was as to whether she was really doing anything for her family at all. Rupo belonged to her grandfather, and he was plainly alive and in hiding, so that he was still master, even though he might not be able to show his face in his home. And the rousy future she had planned for the boys in Muro was dependent on what he might choose to do with his own. A man in hiding would not be able to make a good bargain if he tried to sell his property, so she told herself, and from her mother's description of her grandfather, she could not imagine the old man being willing to let the place go at less than its market value. He would be more likely to give her discretionary power to do her best with the place and hand over some portion of the profit as he might need them. She wondered when he would come again and if she would see him next time. It was a pity that she could not live at Ripple alone. Then he would not be afraid to venture. She herself had perfect trust in the fidelity of Sophie, but unless she could see her grandfather and talk to him, she could not make him understand this. If only Jack were here, what a comfort it would be just now, Pam murmured the words to herself, then yawned and rose from her seat. It was very late, nearly midnight, and there was much wood sawing waiting for her tomorrow. She would write and tell her mother as much as it seemed wise. After all, it would not be long to wait now until Jack came. Pam laughed softly to herself at the difference Jack would find in her. Oh, she knew that she had changed. The old carelessness was gone, and she was more headful of consequences than before. She had learned a lot of self-reliance, too. Of course, she still had made blunders, some of them rather ghastly ones, too. But then, she argued, Rome was not built in a day, and she could not expect to learn wisdom all at once, so it was of no use being dismal when she made mistakes. She crept into the bed beside Sophie and quickly fell asleep. Outside the house, a wild snowstorm was raging. The wind howled round the lone abode, and presently Pam began to dream that the old man, her grandfather, had come back and was reproaching her for letting his money be stolen. But you came and stole it yourself, she exclaimed in surprise, and then was awakened by the sound of her own voice. The lamp which had been left burning was going out for the want of oil, and the dog was scratching at the door. Sure sign that morning had come. Chapter 12 Sugaring Spring was coming with swift and certain steps. A breath of life was sweeping through the forest, and there was a stir and a movement which quickened the pulses of the forest dwellers. The snow lay deep on the hill and valley, and the cold was more intense than ever. But the days were lengthening, and the sun had more heat in it when it shone at midday. Pam was casting about for some way to earn money, or at least to save money, for in that isolated region saving often stood for earning, and to go without anything or without many things was equal to a rise in income. It was the store bill which was bothering her now. The deposit at the store was nearly at an end, and in a few weeks she would have to choose between paying ready money and submitting to being charged the credit price for all goods, and that was so high that she hated the thought of it. It was true she was a Londoner by birth and upbringing, 
but she was descended from generations of forest dwellers, and the lore of the woods was somehow bred into the bone. Other people could make a living in the forest, and she would do it too, or perish in the attempt. Sophie, did you ever go sugaring? She asked one evening when she had come in rather late to supper and was pulling off her heavy boots, groaning a little because she was so stiff and sore from long hours of splitting and sawing firewood. Sophie was flying flapjacks for supper, and she had to turn one very carefully before she answered. Yes, she said, I have been several times, but I always fail to see where the fun comes in. Mother used to love sugaring, Pam remarked in a thoughtful tone as she attacked her second boot. I dare say she did, Sophie turned her flapjack out onto the dish where it fell with a spluttering hiss. She put another chunk of lard in the pan and set it on the stove to get hot. There are sugaring parties most year, and people seem to think it is great fun, but we are not all made alike, and I never can see much pleasure in getting my clothes all messed up, catching bad colds, and working until every bone in my body aches just for amusement. My dear, to hear you talk, anyone would think that you were qualifying for a speedy development into a suburban old maid of the most conventional sort, laughed Pam, instead of which you are making your trezzo from marriage with a man in the most adventurous profession that could be found. Now I would enjoy a sugaring party more than anything else, really for the fun of it. I mean, but there is a solid gain too, is there not? is the profit side of the question that appeals to me at the present. Do you think I could get up a party? I don't doubt it, Sophie gurgled with amused laughter. Don would give anything for a chance to come, and so, of course, would Nathan Grittis. Though I expect they would quarrel a bit over the best mode of procure, Don can never forget that he has been to college and has been trained in the most expert and scientific fashion, while Nathan is quite sure that the weight of years and experience should take the first place. The two Hubbards would like to come too, also young Will Palmer from over the ridge, and oh, half a dozen more, perhaps, but they are all young men, or at least unmarried men. I could not go sugaring with them, Sophie. I think you are horrid, cried Pam, but the laughter in her voice took the edge from her speech, and Sophie was laughing also. Over supper, they sketched out a plan of campaign. The maples on the ridgeland had not been tapped for several years and should yield a fine lot of syrup. It was the boiling that would be the trouble. Experience was necessary here, and although Pam would have preferred that she call a hen party for her sugaring, it was plain the business could not be carried to successful finish without masculine aid. I will go over tomorrow and ask Galena, what she thinks about it, said Pam, with decision, and when supper was done, she went round the house and even hunted through the cellar to see how many pans and buckets were available for use in holding syrup. There was a tremendous lot of rubbish, one sort and another, stored in the cellar under the house at Ripple. Pam had never seemed to have the time to turn the place out and sort things up. But after she had been poking around that evening, she made up her mind she would have to do it before the sugaring took place, so that she might get some clear idea 
as to her storage capacity. Galena Grittens welcomed Pam's great idea with the exclamation, You are really wonderful for a city girl, and an English city girl, too, she exclaimed. You think and plan as if you had been reared in the backwoods. It is in my bones, replied Pam. Sometimes I feel as if all the other parts of my life had been a dream, and only this is real. Although I was brought up in the city, I have never really belonged to it. Consciously or unconsciously, it is the country I have been pining for, and my mother has always hated London so much that it is not wonderful. We, her children, have hated it too. Then you think we can go sugaring? Why, yes, of course. It is a fine deal, Galena's tone was hearty, for the work promised a frolic, which appealed to the frivolous part of her. It would also be a paying piece of work, and that appealed to the prudent side of her character, so no wonder she approved. Together they arranged details, the time, the company, to be invited, and the terms on which they should be asked to come. Sugaring was usually paid for in kind, Galena told Pam. That is, every member of the sugaring party has a percentage of the sugar that was obtained. The trees are all fairly near to your house, so we can go and come in a day. One, one of the men had better camp at the ground, but there will be no need for the women to do it, and there would save you any amount of trouble. Galena's voice was brisk and businesslike. She and her brother were two of the very few people who made farming in those parts downright profitable, as Pam knew, and that was why in all matters pertaining to outdoors she came to sit at the feet of Galena. Camping would be more fun, said Pam, whose tone was actually wistful. She would have dearly loved to camp out by the trees, which were to be forced to yield their sweetness. It would be an experience indeed to have a tent on the snow, to sit at the tent door, to warm by a fire of logs, then to dream through the solemn midnight hours while the wind moaned through the leafless branches of the trees and the stir of the rising sap sent new life among the whispering twigs, but she had plenty of common sense, and it was easy to see how dangerous it would be for anyone who had been sleeping all the winter in paint houses with a fire in the bedroom to go camping in the forest before the snow was entirely gone. This was a case where sentiment had to be flung overboard, and common sense had to dictate the mode of daily life. So far, Pam had not ailed the whole winter through. She had not even had a bad cold, but spring was the testing time, and it would never do from the point of view of economy for her to be ill now. That work was about to increase on her hands. Nathan Griddens readily promised to lend a hand with the boiling, but he advised her to ask Don Grinson to take the management of the affair. The lad has got a book learning to help out experience, and it is when the two go together that the best results are obtained, said Nathan in his deep voice, then went on to say, If he is bossing the show, I shan't feel so tired and responsible. I am willing enough to give labor, but I don't want the burden of thinking and planning the whole business. After this, there was nothing for it but Pam should ask Don if he would take the lead in the sugaring, and in truth, Don was very willing to accept the responsibilities. He had been busy enough all winter lumbering the black larch on his own land, for he had taken a farm near the corner which had dropped out of cultivation for nearly ten years, 
and it would require a tremendous lot of hard work and considerable amount of money to make it a paying venture, but just for a few weeks until the snow were melted, work was easy with him, and sugaring would be something of a holiday. He came over one damp afternoon to go the round of the trees with Pam. The forest was full of the music of tinkling streams and falling water. Pam had rubbers over her boots, or she would have been foot wet before she had gone ten steps, for it was like wading in a pond. Taking the narrow trail, where now they had to walk high on the ridge of the drifted snow, they came out to the old tote road, and following it for nearly half a mile, they descended as a steep dip and plunged into a forest of maples. Are these sugar maples? demanded Pomp. There was an infection of awe in her voice, for it seemed to her that if all the trees she could yield maple sugar, she would be in the process of becoming a millionaire, or rather her grandfather would be, seeing that the property belonged to him and not to her. No. There is a lot of red maple here, replied Don, whose gaze was searching the bare trunks with an eye of an expert. How can you tell them apart, she asked, then sighed a little, because the more she knew of the forest lore, the more she found there was to learn. By formation largely, he said, pointing out to her this and that difference in shape. But if I were seriously at a loss, there is one infallible test. Just drop a little sulfate of iron on to the wood. And if it's sugar maple, it turns a greenish hue. But if it's red maple, it goes deep blue in color. But that would be quite an extreme test. It is easy enough to tell them apart as a rule. They look dreadfully alike to me, she said ruefully, and then burst out. How I wish Jack were here. How he would enjoy all this fun and sugary. Can he get here in time? Don was counting and measuring and so he asked his question in an abstracted fashion. Of course it would be to Pam's advantage to have her brother to help, for it would mean one share of sugar saved, seeing that every worker from outside would take their own profit. Mother said the end of the month, and I did not like to press her to send him sooner, because he is earning a really good salary for a boy of his age. Mr. Gray and Greeny have been very good to him, and they do not like losing him. Then, of course, Mother has got to find money for his fare. It has made me feel so bad that I could not help her with that. But I dare not take Grandfather's money in case might be wanted before I make it up again. Do you think he will come back or be found by the police? Don looked at her in amazement. He knew nothing about that night's experience when Sophie and Pam had been lured from the house by that false cry for help, for Sophie had kept the secret most loyally. Pam winced. She always did wince at any mention of the police in connection with her grandfather, for she was very proud, and the shame of it all scorched her very soul. It was quite bad enough to be poor, but happily there was no shame in that, when the poverty could not be helped. Of course I think he will come back, when he feels inclined, she answered, and in spite of herself a note of offense crept into her tone. Then when he does come back, the police will have to do their duty, and that is why the money must be kept for his defense. It is hard on your mother, though. Don was still keenly surveying the trees, and so his eyes were away from the face of his companion, where the red blood was mounting in a burning blush of shame. 
right to the roots of her hair. Mrs. Walsh has had no help from you all the winter, and now she will have to lose your brother's help too. It is not quite so bad as it might be. Pam was smiling a little ruefully at the remembrance of what she was and comparing it with what she had been forced by circumstance to become. I was out of a situation when I came here, and as grandfather sent the money for my fare, I did not cost mother anything, and she has not had to keep me all the winter. Then I was not much good at home. I always seemed to do the wrong things. I upset the boarders by laughing at them. I could not get as much work out of the servants as Jack could, and I was always breaking things or tearing things or doing things wrong. Did you ever change your nature on the voyage? asked Don, turning to look at her in amazement, for she had struck him as about the most capable and clever girl it had ever been his lot to meet, and he valued her accordingly. Pam laughed merrily. She was not even embarrassed by the very evident admiration in her companion's face. He was so plainly unconscious of it that it would be in the worst possible taste to notice or appear to resent it. I don't think I changed my nature, only that my particular gifts have now found a more suitable setting, she answered indifferently. Then she asked a question about the chagrin which diverted the talk from personalities and kept it on a strictly business groove. Don was great on sugaring, and after some deliberation he declared that the boiling would be best done at the house. It would add to the labor a good deal to have to carry the syrup up so far, but there was much less risk of spoiling the color by any overboiling. The fire could be kept steadier, and the work could be done in more satisfactory manner. Then came busy days of trough making. This was all done at Ripple. Indeed, most of it was done by Pam, after Don made a few as patterns, for Dr. Grinson had spilled from his sled just at that time and was so much hurt that he could not go to his patients except when Don went with him to lift him in and out of the sled and help him to the bedside of those who needed him badly. It was the sickness time, and the fierce cold was relaxing its grip on the land, and everyone was feeling the change. Nathan Grittis, who said he would come and help make the troughs, was ill in bed with influenza, and Glenna was tied hand and foot with the work of the house and the farm, to say nothing of the nursing. Indeed, Nathan was so ill for three days that Mrs. Buckle went over to help Gittin's farm to help Galena, who was nearly worn out. Then he came to improve and got better almost as fast as he had gotten ill. Then the sugaring began. The trees selected were carefully numbered, an incision was made in the park, and the little troughs made by Pam were fixed under the opening to catch the oozing syrup. When the troughs were full, they emptied into a cooking pot, which two of the sugar workers carried the round of the trees. Then the pot was brought to the house, and the work of boiling and skimming began. But the accident, the frights, and the surprises were so numerous that Pam began to wonder whether, after all, her sugaring venture would pay its expenses. The snow was melting fast, and the sun was so hot at midday that the bears, which had been sleeping for most of the winter, snugly tucked into some cranny of the hillside or in hollow trees, came out of their long slumber 
and cast about for food to satisfy them after their long fast. As a matter of course, they found the troughs under the tap trees, and equally as a matter of course, they helped themselves to the syrup, knocked the troughs down so that the escaping syrup was wasted, and generally upset things. After this, a very close watch had to be kept, and although it was impossible to keep the bears from stealing the syrup, it was possible to prevent the waste by fixing the troughs anew and replacing them when they were damaged with fresh ones. The boiling was an anxious business too, but here Pam proved her mettle. It took her some days to discover just how big to make the fire and just how fast it was safe to let the syrup boil without its boiling over. But when once she had succeeded in mastering these details, she was able to run the boiling business single-handed while the other of the party were away collecting syrup. Sophie's time was fairly well filled in catering for such a big party, and the fun of the meal times was fast and furious. Luckily, the weather was fine, and so the work went on with dispatch. The house was redolent of the smell of boiling syrup, and when Sophie complained that it made her feel sick, Pam pointed out to her how much worse it would be if the stuff were allowed to boil over on the stove and the odors of burning were added to the smell of the syrup. At last, the long hours of bending over the boiling syrup began to affect Pam, and she had a fearful headache, and then came nausea and sickness. Galena was forced to take the place of boiler, while Pam went out to the woods to help in the collecting. Don wanted her to come with him. It was necessary for them to work in pairs, and Pam looked so shockingly bad from her bilirious fit that she was really an object of pity. But Pam had a perverse fit and would not go. She told Don that he must go with Nathan and work as fast as possible while she strolled along behind with little Amanda Higgins, whom Mrs. Buckle had generally spared for a day's outing in the forest. Don was reluctant to leave her, and he said that Amanda could go with Nathan, and they two would go together when he would see that she did not have to work hard nor yet to walk further than she felt fit for but pam was bent on having her own way and like most perverse people she had to suffer in consequence amanda was a freckless girl whose idea of sugaring was to run here and there looking in sheltered places and on the sunny side of the banks to see if the colt's foot was coming in blossom, she left Pam to do the work of emptying the troughs and refixing them, and she was a proud and happy girl when she announced with a stout of jubilation that she had found the first flower. Pam dropped her trough in a hurry then and let the exuding sap drip to waste while she ran to look at the tiny yellow blossom, which was indeed a harbinger of the host of flowers that were waiting to carpet the waste places with beauty. It is too early for flower hunting yet, said Pam, mindful of her duty, as she picked up the trout, which she had flung down in such a hurry, mindful of her duty, as she picked up the trout, which she had flung down in such a hurry, and went off to fix it to the tree. Come and help me, Amanda, and next week, when the sugar business is all out of the way, I will ask Mrs. Buckle to spare you, and we will have a long afternoon in the forest, hunting for flowers. 
They will all be new to me, but I expect you know all about them, and which come first. I should just think I do, cried Amanda, who was skipping and prancing like a young lamb, and was almost as irresponsible. She started to run down a little bank, and that was clear of snow, and then to jump the hollow at the bottom, where the drift still lay in unsullied whiteness on the top of last year's leaves. But she caught her foot an upstanding root and tried to save herself, failed, then went sprawling into the drift, clutching wildly for something by which to save herself and screaming at the top of her voice. Pam put the pot of syrup carefully on the ground and went to help Amanda. Privately, she was sharply regretting the fit of perversity which she had made her refuse to go with Don, for if Amanda had been with Nathan Grittis, he would have taken good care that she did not get up to pranks of this sort, which not merely wasted time, but endangered her limbs likewise. There was so much sickness about at this time that it was of all things foolish to run risks which might be avoided. Catch hold of my hand, and I will pull you out, cried Pam, and holding to the stem of the slender young birch, which one hand she reached out the other to assist Amanda from the hollow, which was a deep one, Oh, 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 Amanda's voice rose in a crescendo of shrieks as she squirmed around and around in an aggravated endeavor to get on her feet, and she was in such a hurry that it took about twice as long to scramble up as it would have done if she had gone to work in a cooler fashion. Ah, oh, ah, there had been a dead man down there, under me. I am frightened out of my life. Catch hold of me. Catch hold of me. I will pull you out, but do not trample about in that fashion. It is horrible. Pam's voice was sharp with authority now. It was dreadful that Amanda should be trampling on what had once been a human being, and the child seemed too demoralized by her fear to do the sensible thing, and getting out of the hole as quickly as possible. She was shrieking and crying, but Pam did not once check the noise, for it seemed to her that the best way of letting the others know that something serious was the matter. There was an answering shout from the distance, but the two men did not arrive before Pam had managed to grip Amanda and land her on the bank. She was shivering and crying at such a rate that she was wholly incoherent, and it was Pam who had to tell the two men the cause of the trouble, but she kept her back, turned upon the hollow, so desperately afraid was she of seeing something of what had scared Amanda so badly. Nathan slid carefully into the hollow and began scrapping away at the melted snow with his hands. Then Don crept down also, and Pam hushed Amanda with a gesture of authority while she crept her back turned upon the scene. We found that, and that, said the voice of Don at her elbow, but there is little else save a few bones. It looks as if the poor fellow... Whoever he was had been set upon and eaten by wolves. Pam glanced at the objects he was holding out to her and then gave a startled cry. For the first, a little wallet with leather cover and metal corners was one of the things taken from her grandfather's desk that night when she and Sophie had been lured from the house and the other thing was a stout little canvas pack containing coins.